Before we jump into our text this morning and before I invite Sam up to read, I want to just invite you to just bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning and just want to pray a prayer out of Psalm 119 this morning as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord and to come to his word. Father, teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and we will keep it to the end. Give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts. Lead us in the path of your commandments, for we delight in it. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. Confirm to your servants your promise that you may be feared among us. Turn away the report, reproach that we dread, for your rules are good. Behold, we long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give us life. Lord, this is our prayer as we come to your word. It is truth, and only in you can we find truth, not in ourselves. In you is the way, not in ourselves. In you is the light, not in ourselves. In you is the life, not in ourselves. And so we come this morning as we come to your word and we pray, Lord, that your spirit would do a work in us, that we, even if as we pray these things, we don't feel those things in our heart, Lord, that you would make this to be true in our hearts in regards to your word. So, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be soft, that our ears would be open, that our eyes would be open to see and to hear all that you would have for us this morning. Lord, we give you this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, I want to invite Sam Brewster up. Sam's going to read for us out of Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. And if you are able, please stand out of respect for God's word as we come to it this morning. Sam? Good morning, church. Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So this, his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, 
his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also will heaven, my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Church, hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Sam. So, I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie Silence. I think I've, I've talked about that movie before in this space. It's a hard movie to watch. It's actually a movie uh, Martin Scorsese did about the persecution of Christians in uh, Japan in the early uh, 1600s. And so uh, the storyline goes uh, something like this, that there's a rumor that comes to uh, the, the Vatican that a priest in Japan had apostatized his face. And so if you don't know what that means, he had turned his back on Jesus. And so they send two priests into Japan in 1633 to try to find this priest to discover whether or not this is true. And what happens is these priests come into Japan. They obviously find a church that is under severe persecution. And, and they meet this man named Kichiro. I think I'm saying that right. But uh, Kichiro is a Japanese man. And he begins to become their guide. And as you walk through this story, there's kind of two parallel stories. There's the stories of the, the priest looking for the one who had rumored to apostatize his faith. And then there's the story of Kichiro. And Kichiro, um, as you follow and watch the movie, kind of goes through this pattern of denying Christ and then confessing, asking for forgiveness, and then coming back in, and then denying Christ and confessing, and on and on it goes. The first time he does this, he denies Christ so that he isn't burnt at the stake with his family. And so he denies Christ, and then he doesn't um, get burnt, and then he comes to the priest and asks for forgiveness, and the priest says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll grant forgiveness. Now, we all know that priests don't give forgiveness, but this is the story. This is the movie. And nonetheless, later in the movie, uh, Kichiro is faced with drowning uh, at the, at because of his faith. And he denies Christ again so that he wouldn't drown and wouldn't be uh, killed in that way. And then later on in the movie, Kichiro actually betrays the priests who are looking for this other priest. And they end up getting arrested and going through suffering. At the very end of the movie, and uh, how it works is the priest ends up actually apostatizing his own faith. And so um, him and Kichiro, the one that he had betrayed over and over again, become friends. And 30 years goes on, and they show you at the very end of the movie, Kichiro once again asks the priest for forgiveness for betraying and, and for denying Jesus. And he grants it. And then the last scene that you see Kichiro in, it is discovered that he never lost hope that Jesus would one day forgive him of his sin, that Jesus would one day forgive him, even for turning on his back on him over and over again. And he's led away, and we never hear um, any more about this man. And as I watch this movie, I see this uh, I think about this parable that we read this morning, because in my mind, every single time the priest takes him back, I, I find myself thinking, don't do it. Like, Kichiro's just going to betray you again. He's just going to turn his back on you again. He's just going to fail again. It doesn't matter how many times he asks for forgiveness. He's just going to do it again. And here... We have this story where Jesus is responding to Peter. 
Now, we need to understand that the context of what this is, is being spoken in, right before this parable, when Peter asked the question to Jesus, Jesus has gone on to tell the disciples how to deal with sin. In essence, he's saying, listen, you should always seek for restoration and reconciliation. And so if someone sins against you, you go to that brother and you tell them their sin. And if they repent, then praise God, you've gained your brother. But if they don't repent, then you need to go get another brother or sister in the church and bring them to that person. And then together you plead with them, showing them their sin in hopes that they'll repent, that you would gain your brother. And then Jesus says, if they still are not repentant, then you take that person to the church as a whole and you plead together as a church, please see your sin and repent all with the desire that they would repent, they would see their sin, they would be restored and reconciled, and we would gain a brother or sister. But if they don't, then and only then do you say, well, you no longer belong as a part of us. We are doing that not to cast you out in a sense of saying, like, we don't ever want to see forgiveness come to you, but in the hopes that God would open your eyes to your sin. And so Peter, in response to that, then asks this question. The same question that I asked so many times when I saw that movie. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? This was the question ringing in the back of my mind over and over again as Kichiro would fail and betray and turn his back on Christ. How often? This is one of the hardest questions that oftentimes we have to deal with, isn't it? How often do I have to forgive someone who keeps betraying me, who keeps hurting me? Because if you've ever been in a situation like that where someone continues to fail or continues to hurt, like there comes a point where you're like, do I need to continue to step into this? Do I continue to need to walk in this? Like how often do I need to do this? This is a really really hard question. And more often than not, what happens in our lives is when we think about this, we say, okay, I might forgive, but I'm going to only forgive with certain qualifications, right? And so before we get into the parable, I think this is what Peter is kind of talking about, what he's kind of leading us to, which is this idea of kind of a qualified forgiveness. And you say, what, do, what does that mean? Well, think about what it means to qualify for a race, right? If you watch the Olympics, you know there's like qualifying races where you don't have to finish first, second, or third, but the whole goal is to qualify for the real race, right? You have to meet certain expectations. We know what it is to have to qualify for certain scholarships or to qualify to enter into certain drawings or something of that nature, to qualify for government assistance. You know that there's certain things that have to be done. And I think in the same way, oftentimes, we might want to grant forgiveness but only if someone actually qualifies for it. I think this is what Peter's doing. I think he's saying, like, does someone still qualify for forgiveness if they've sinned eight times? Now, it's important the number that Peter uses here because he's not just picking any random number. He's picking the number seven. And biblically speaking, the number seven speaks to and symbolizes kind of a wholeness or a completeness to something. And so Peter, in essence, is coming to Jesus and is saying, listen, if someone has fully and completely sinned against me, like holistically sinned against me, like, can I refuse to forgive them? 
Like, can I say no at that point? Can I just, or do I have to, to keep coming back? I think one of the big questions for us is, are we guilty of this? And we may not be counting the numbers. We might not be thinking of, of wholeness or a full completeness of someone's sin against us. But oftentimes we do think about someone's request for forgiveness or they come and they say sorry to us. And we say, I wonder if they're truly repentant. You ever found yourself asking that question? I wonder if they're truly repentant. You know, someone would sin against you and they hurt you or they betray you and they come and they say they're sorry and they ask for forgiveness. And in the back of your mind, you're wondering if it's really real, whether or not you should actually grant them forgiveness. And Peter's just like us. It leads us to wonder, even in the beginning of this parable, what's Jesus going to say? Well, we know what he says. Matthew chapter 18, verse 22, he says, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times, or seven times seven, depending on your translation and how they translate the Greek there. And listen, Jesus isn't playing math games. He's kind of one-upping Peter. He's saying, oh, oh, you're saying that if someone's fully and completely sinned against you, like that should be the end of it? No, no, I'm kind of saying to you now, um, fully forgive them and fully do it again. Like, I don't know if you've ever gotten into one of those games with your kids where it's like, well, I love you infinity. And they say, well, I love you infinity times infinity, right? This is kind of what Jesus is saying here. I'm not saying you just fully forgive them. I'm saying you fully, fully, fully forgive them. You just keep coming back at it. Like it's infinity times infinity. In other words, what Jesus is saying is like there is no time when it is acceptable to withhold from a repentant person your or my forgiveness. And this may lead you to ask the question, what about someone who's not repentant? And we'll take a look at that later. But what Jesus then does now is after he says this and he makes this statement, he goes in to tell us this parable. And the intent of this parable, and like we said last week, it's not an allegory, and so it's not to align every single component up to something specific or real, but what Jesus' intent is to show us the quality of forgiveness, specifically the quality of the forgiveness of the Father towards us, and then how that works itself out and should work itself out in our lives. And begins by comparing the kingdom of God. And remember, the kingdom of God is about his presence, and it's about his reign, And he talks about how this king or this master is now calling all of his accounts to settle them. Now, this is an important component, isn't it? You know why it's important? It's important to be reminded that for every single one of us, every single person listening to this, every single person in this room, everyone in the world, we are going to have to settle our accounts with the king. No one gets away from that. The accounts are will have to be settled. And this king, this master, has called his accounts to settle those accounts. And so this story begins by bringing this servant into the master's presence. Now, there's two different stories here. There's two different debtors, and there's two different creditors, or masters, if you will, in a sense. And they're intended to contrast. And so the first one is that the the, the servant comes before the master, and the master tells him how much he owes him. And what does he owe him? He owes the master 10,000 talents. Now, to us, that doesn't seem 
like a lot, or we don't know what that means. Like, is it $10,000? Well, here's what that plays itself out in our day and age. A talent was worth about 20 years worth of wages. So 10,000 talents would be 200,000 years worth of your wages. Just think about that. That's 200,000 years going to work every day just to pay your debt. Like, even get more specific, let's take the median um, salary for people in America being $55,000. You know how much money that plays itself out to be? Over $11 billion is what this man owed. In our days, money. Like, that is an insurmountable amount of magic. Can you imagine owing that much to somebody? And the, the king looks at the servant and is like, you owe me this much. And he declares that his family and he be sold to pay the debt. But the servant falls down upon his knees and he begs and he pleads to the king, to the master, I'll pay it back, which by the way, isn't possible. I'll pay it back. I'll, I'll, I'll work my entire life just to pay it back. Just don't, just don't sell me. And then what does the king do? He forgives the debt. He doesn't forgive some of the debt. He forgives all $11 billion of the debt. And so the story continues, and we now enter into the next kind of contrasting relationship. And that same servant goes out and another servant, and it's important to note that this is a fellow servant of the king. Uh, this isn't his servant. It's another fellow servant. They're peers together. But this servant owes him money. He owes him something. And what does he owe him? Well, he owe him, owes him a hundred denarii. So again, in comparison, a denarii was worth about a day's wage. So this guy owes the first servant about 100 days of wages. So again, with the same $55,000, that's about $21,000. Not insignificant, but it's not $11 billion. Right? Not insignificant, but it's not $11 billion. And what does this man do? He grabs him, and he demands that he pay him. And the man pleads, but he doesn't care. And he throws him in prison. And before we get to the shocking, ridiculous nature of what this man does, which I think we can all see, like how in the world could anybody do this? I want us to look at the specific quality of the forgiveness that the king gives this man who owes him so much. First, we see that his forgiveness is based upon his compassion. As the servant cries out to the king, verse 27 tells us that the man that the king had pity upon him, he forgave this, 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 he had compassion upon him. Like his forgiveness is based on his compassion. It's based upon his pity. God is not full of harshness as so many people oftentimes want to play him out to be. So often people think he's full of wrath and he's full of anger and he's harsh and he's unforgiving, but yet we see that that's not the case at all. When this man pleads and he asks for pity, the, 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 the king has compassion upon him. This is the character of our God. And this is not just a New Testament thing. 
We read from Psalm 145 earlier. Look at Exodus chapter 34. Look at who our Lord is. The Lord, the Lord, he is a God, merciful and gracious. Somebody just stop. He's merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And he's gracious. He does give us what we don't deserve. And he's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Here's what we see in this. For those who would come to God, those who would cry out, he is merciful. He is gracious. He is loving. The master in his parable, sees the effect of this man's debt upon his heart and upon his soul and the weight that he would have to bear if he was responsible to pay the entire debt. And he shows compassion to him. So his forgiveness is based first and foremost upon compassion. Second, it is forgiveness is, bay, is not a conditional forgiveness. You know, the king does not say, well, I'll forgive if you read the scriptures daily, or I'll forgive if you do this, or if you go to church, or if you join the military. He doesn't give any kinds of conditions. He just says, I will forgive, and I will completely forgive the debt. So when you think of God's forgiveness to you, your insurmountable debt you have to be reminded that his forgiveness begins in his compassion and it is given without condition. We're not able to pay him back. But oftentimes we don't tend to forgive this way, do we? We're more apt to put stipulations upon forgiveness. Well, I'll for, forgive this person who's wounded me so deeply if they do this or if they say that or if they prove themselves in this way. And as offensive as this idea may seem to us, we see that it's not only an unconditional forgiveness, but it's a complete forgiveness. Wouldn't we still think it was fair if the king said, well, I'll forgive you $10 billion of your debt, but I want you to pay $1 billion. I'll, 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 I'll forgive the vast majority of it, but I want you to still pay a year's worth of your wages for me. That's not what he does. It's all or nothing. It's everything. He, in one command, this king completely releases the servant from his debt. In one command, he completely forgives. He completely frees. And Jesus is reminding Peter and us that our debt to the king, because of our sin, is equally insurmountable. And he doesn't entertain some deal. Either all forgiven or none of it's forgiven. Colossians says that our entire record of death is nailed on the cross. Not some of it, all of it. And he sees it all. He knows it all. So his forgiveness is based in compassion. It's unconditional and it's complete. Jesus is turning Peter's eyes off of the offense of his brother and onto his unpayable offense to God. And he's telling him that his compassionate love will provide a way for everyone who cries out for mercy to be forgiven. Now, 
This might lead us to say, well, why doesn't God just forgive all sin then? Like, shouldn't he? Isn't that what this is all about? Well, this leads us to the fourth component and the quality of forgiveness. Not only is it full of compassion, is it based on compassion? Not only is, is it a non-conditional type of forgiveness and a complete forgiveness, but we have to recognize that forgiveness is absolutely costly. Somebody has to pay the debt. I once heard an analogy from a pastor, and I'll just share it with you, and uh, I think it's helpful. But um, if you take a circumstance, like let's say, for example, I invited you to my home this afternoon, and you come to my house, and uh, you get into my driveway, and you think you put your car in park, but instead of putting your car in park, you leave it in drive, and you accidentally hit the gas pedal, and you drive through my garage door. All right? Like, Something is severely broken. Please don't ever do that, by the way. But nonetheless, like something is severely broken. Now, now that that situation exists, like there's only one of three things that can be done. One, you pay for the garage door. Right? Like you, you say, I got it. I'll pay for it. I'll engage it. Right? The second thing is we can share the cost of the garage door. Well, hey, listen, I know you didn't mean to do that. So I'll, I'll take a little bit of the cost and you take a little bit of the cost. The third thing is I can forgive that offense. But someone still has to fix the garage door, don't they? If I forgive the offense, I have to pay the debt. I have to be the one that carries the cost. See, here's the point of that. And it's so important for us to understand when in regard to our sins, nobody can just have a slate cleaned without someone paying the debt. Even in this parable, when the king releases the servant of his $11 billion debt, that's still going to have to be paid by the king. Someone has to pay. And this is no different with God. Someone has to pay the debt of our sin. Death is required for sin. And to forgive the debt means that God has to pay that cost himself. Even though we didn't rack up the debt, even though he didn't benefit at all from what was quote unquote gained by the debt, but to forgive means that he would still have to pay. He did that. He did it on the cross. People often, often ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? That's why Jesus had to die. Because someone has to pay the debt. He did that for us. And as we think about that, even in this moment right now, as you think about your debt to God, as you think about that account being settled, the question has to come to your mind. Have you ever cried out to him? Have you ever pleaded with him in the same way that this servant pleaded with the king and said, I, I can't pay this or, or I need help? This is crushing. That's a question we all need to ask. Can you imagine the next servant coming in, following after this and saying, well, I know I only have a $10 billion debt, but since you forgave the last guy, I think you should forgive me too. Like, that's not how forgiveness works. Like, it comes when we cry out, I can't do this. I need help. I need you to forgive. I need you to deal with this. This man cried out in humility and brokenness, and that brokenness provoked compassion in the king. 
We cannot go to God in pride and expectation and entitlement that our debt can just disappear. We have to recognize what he has done and we have to place our faith in Jesus who has paid our debt. He has said that he will pay the debt for any who call upon his name, any who will cast their trust upon him and declare him Lord. This is the kind of forgiveness that is available to all of us. But not all are going to take advantage of it. Some are going to spurn it. Some are going to say, no, no, I got this on my own. I don't care how big the debt is. I'm going to carry that weight myself. I'm going to take it on my own. I'm going to end our time with kind of another point that Jesus is making in this text, which is to question our own forgiveness of others. Who do we forgive? When we are confronted with someone who has sinned against us, who owes us, do we forgive them? Or do we forgive everybody? What about the non-believer? This parable to Peter is specifically addressed to Peter who's asking about the brothers within the church, those who would sin against them. And Jesus says, like, you should always forgive You should always forgive. I want you to think about someone right now in your head that has hurt you. A brother or sister within the church. If you've been in the church long enough, this probably isn't hard. Because we've all experienced it. Someone who's betrayed you, someone who's said something mean or cutting to you, someone who's wounded you, someone who's looked at you cross or said something in a way that demeans you within the church. I want you to think of them. I want you to put their, their faces in your imagination. I want you to think of that offense. I want you to be mindful of that offense. Now, if that person that I hope you have in your mind right now if they are your brother and sister in Christ, that offense that you have pictured in your head right now is part of their $11 billion debt to the king. That's part of their debt to the king because we're all servants to the king, aren't we? And so as much as that hurt you and as much as that damaged you, that sin is ultimately against who? That sin is ultimately against God because every sin, even the ones that hurt me and the ones that hurt you, every single sin is against him. This is what Psalm 51 says, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, if you know the context of this text, David is talking about the murder of Uriah and the the, the rape of Bathsheba who actually gets pregnant, right? So if you know that story, you're like, how in the world is David saying against only you have I sinned? It seems like he sinned against Uriah. But David understands that his sin against Uriah is ultimately a sin against God. And if the sin that has hurt you, and it has also hurt God, and he forgave it, how in the world can you withhold forgiveness? This is Jesus' point. Listen, If we withhold forgiveness from a brother or sister, we miss now not only on the profound depth of our own need for forgiveness, but you miss the reality of the one that that sin was ultimately against. Our forgiveness for a brother or sister should be the same as the forgiveness of God towards us. It should be full of compassion. It should be without condition. It should be complete 
with a full understanding of the cost to Jesus. Jesus is calling us to bear in his sufferings, to extend forgiveness to a brother and to a sister that we might gain them back. Nobody denies the wound that is caused to us when someone sins against us. Nobody is denying that debt. But what Jesus is saying is if you have been forgiven $11 billion worth of those same kinds of injuries, how could you turn around and not grant that same forgiveness to another brother or sister in Christ who has also been forgiven of an $11 billion debt? Like, I've wiped it away. If Jesus has taken our sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west, if he's buried them in the ocean, he's turned his back, he's blotted them out, how are we going to bring it back and say, no, no, I demand that it's taken care of? Can you imagine? That's exactly what the servant in this parable does. He says, I don't care about my debt. That person wounded me. That person wounded me. Now, there's two other people that we need to be mindful of. In this call, in this parable, is to, to forgive people, to forgive the church, to forgive our brothers and sisters. But what about someone who's unrepentant? What are we supposed to do about someone who's unrepentant, someone who's wounded you and hurt you and betrayed you, but they don't feel repent, they don't feel sorrowful? What are we supposed to do with that person? What are we supposed to do to an unbeliever who is never in, in humility and contriteness gone to God and asked for forgiveness? How are we supposed to do that? Well, the scripture is clear. We are to love them. Now, here's the crazy part about that. This may not have anything to do with our ability to forgive because if somebody in this room hurts me and wounds me and they're unrepentant of that sin, I can't forgive that sin in any way that addresses the debt they have to God, can I? Like if a non-believer sins against me, I can't grant them forgiveness. I can't tell them they're forgiven because their sin is ultimately against God, but I can love them. And one of the things that God has told us is not that love, as we've talked about this before, it's not objective or a subjective thing. It's an objective thing. He's told us what love is. And love is to not count someone's wrongs against them. Right? So now, now make a list of those wrongs to outdo someone in honor, to die to ourselves for their sake. He's telling you to do this to someone who's unrepentant, someone who's an enemy. That is really, really hard, isn't it? To love someone who says, I don't care that I hurt you. I have no remorse for wounding you whatsoever. This is unbelievably hard, but it is an unbelievable privilege for us to be able to then trust in God regarding that person. See, we can't forgive them but we can hope that God can. See, when we're sinned against by a non-believer or somebody who's unrepentant, we are to pray for them. We are to love them. We are to walk in the same forgiveness that we've been given, praying for them every day that one day that person will cry out to God for forgiveness. That one day that person will recognize their sin and they will go to him because in the end, while we cannot grant forgiveness of God, we 
can release our right to demand justice for what someone else has done. And we can trust him to bring that justice about. See, Jesus frees us to praise God for the forgiveness that's granted to a brother and and forgiveness that's granted to us, but he also frees us to trust God for either the forgiveness or the ultimate justice of somebody else. So let me just make it real practical. Let's say someone hurts you and wounds you and they're unrepentant for that. You can trust Jesus to bring that person to justice. You don't have to demand it. He's going to settle all accounts, every account. So you will either one day stand at the throne of God in thanksgiving that that person cried out for mercy and gained the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for the same sin that hurt you, or you can trust God to in justice settle that account with that person. It is not our job to do so. We are called to love them. We are called to love them and to be kind to them and gentle and outdo them in honor and seek their good over ours and keep no record of wrong against them. We are called to be Christ towards them without condition, with complete forgiveness in our own hearts towards those people. And the only way you and I can do that is to be reminded of our debt that was forgiven by Christ through Christ. A lack of forgiveness, a demand to see the pain come upon another person, trusting in our ability to bring about justice is only going to bring about bitterness for your and my soul. It's only going to wreck our own life. And withholding forgiveness from a brother puts us into an absolutely dangerous position. So the whole point of this parable, as Peter is asking this real, visceral, painful question that many of us have asked before, like how many times do I have to forgive a brother? The point of this parable is to remind us of the insurmountable debt that has been forgiven in our own lives. And every single time someone sins against you, be reminded in your own heart of what God has forgiven you. And extend to them out of compassion and pity the same thing that he has extended to us and trust the Lord for their souls. Trust the Lord for their souls. Do you want that person who has wounded you to find Christ and have their sin forgiven in the same way yours was? Or do you want that person to be condemned to pay for their own debt? I hope that we can all say that we ultimately want that person who's hurt us so badly to find Christ. But realistically, if you're like me, we're tempted at times to want them to get justice, aren't we? And this parable reminds us to run back to the cross, to run back to the grace and the mercy and the steadfast love of God so that we might have the strength to extend to other people the same forgiveness that has been given to us. We're gonna close our time this morning with communion.
And Ryan's going to come out and he's going to play for us and he's going to lead us in a song. And, and what's beautiful about this moment and when we, as we come to communion is every single week it's an opportunity for us to be reminded how dependent we are upon the work of Jesus. Amen? Like lest you ever forget your record of death, every week we need to be reminded that it was nailed to the cross because Jesus allowed his body to be broken so yours wouldn't have to be. That his body, his blood was spilt so that yours wouldn't have to be. Jesus paid the cost for you and for me. As we enter into this time, Ryan's gonna play, play, I'm gonna pray for us. And I wanna encourage you to sit and to be reminded of the debt Jesus paid in your own life. Could you have ever paid that debt on your own? But I also want you to be reminded of any unforgiveness that's in your own heart. You know, the scripture is really clear that when you come to this table, that if you have something against your brother, don't come to this table until you've dealt with it. So if there's someone in this room that you harbor unforgiveness towards, or if there's someone in this room that you realize that you've hurt, or there's someone in your life that you realize you've hurt, or there's someone in your life that's not here that you harbor unforgiveness towards, don't come to this table until you've dealt with it. Because then you might find yourself guilty of the same thing this man was, and in, in coming to the table hoping for the forgiveness of Jesus, expecting the forgiveness of Jesus, pleading for the forgiveness, why you refuse to give it to someone else. And so I would encourage you this morning that even as we pray and even as we come to this table of communion, that as we rise and as you feel led and you go about this room and you come down to the tables to grab your communion, that if there's someone here you need to talk to, go do that first. If there's someone that you need to send a text to and say, hey, I'd love to grab lunch this week and I'd like to make something right. Hey, I'd like to ask for your forgiveness or I'd like to do that now. But don't come to this table and leave unforgiveness in your heart. Don't come to this table and demand justice upon somebody else because they've hurt you. And yet expect his grace and mercy on your own heart. And so I'm gonna pray. And then when you feel like you've laid those things down before the Lord and you feel like you could honestly come to this table abiding and resting in his grace and mercy for you while you're freely extending it to the people that are around you, like you get up and you just come to one of the tables whenever you feel ready. And if you're not able to move and you're not able to get up, you want to just sit there, um, you can raise your hand. We've got a team of individuals that'll come and bring that table to you, but we or to the, the cup to you, but we very intentionally want you to have to get up out of your chair and make a volitional move towards Christ this morning. A, a volitional move to say, like, I'm gonna, I, I'm I'm abiding in his grace and mercy. And if you not forgiving somebody in your life. Let that go. That you might find freedom in that. And if you want prayer, you want to talk to somebody, or you're somebody in a space that you're kind of trying to carry the burden of your own sin, you want to try to pay that debt yourself, I mean, I'm going to work it off. No, you won't. 
And if you want to talk to somebody about getting that burden taken off of you and letting forgiveness wash over you and come to Jesus, like we would love to talk with you this morning. And so pastors, elders, prayer counselors, we're going to be up here at the front of the, the sanctuary. And so as people are getting up and moving to the tables to get their communion, feel free to just come down. We'd love to pray with you and be available to do so. Now take the next few minutes and just pray to the Lord. Lay your own sins before him. And make sure that you are forgiving others in the same way that he has forgiven you. Father, I preach this sermon and I know in my own heart how easy it is for me to justify withholding forgiveness. Because some wounds are deep and they, they hurt. And they don't just go away overnight. And oftentimes, I don't want to forgive somebody. I, I want them to get what they deserve. I want them to be punished for their wrong. I want them to experience the same kind of pain that I felt as a result of their wound. Like, I know that's my heart. And I don't think I'm alone in this space when it comes to that. But Lord, I also know that the pain that has been done to me pales in comparison to the pain that is done to your heart every time sin occurs. It pales in comparison to the insurmountable amount of debt that I have given against you and how many other people I've wounded and hurt because of my own sin. How many people I've betrayed, how many mean things I've said, how many hurtful things I've done and said that have hurt other people, Lord, we need your grace and your mercy. And I would pray that you would help us to have soft hearts and compassionate hearts that we would be able to extend the same grace and mercy that you've given to us, to others. That we would trust you to either forgive that person of their sin or we would trust you to deal with that at the end of times when you call all of our accounts to be settled. We come to this moment though this morning for all of those who have put their hope and trust in your son, Jesus. We are assured that our debt has been dealt with. Our account's already been settled. Our record of death has been nailed to the cross. We are forgiven. We are free. You looked upon us with compassion and you completely forgave. You unconditionally forgave us. Lord, I pray you would help us to abide in that, that you would help us to walk in that, that you would help us to live in that. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to extend it to others.